Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Atomic Bomb. Got, did I get that right? I got that right. Don't know. It's you know a what long, I was doing yesterday? It's a long title, but I, I kind of like when movies do that. What were you doing? Well, it rained. Oh, boy. You're, like, too excited to, to go into this. <laughs> it rained last night, so what I did is I went out. And I collected some pure rainwater. Did it? Did it really? No, it didn't. You're just telling a story. You Word of the podcast, am I right? <laughs> Word of the podcast. Are we ready for it? Yeah. Virtue. I have no comment. That's the scary thing these days. That this is what <laughs> this is what spawned this what spawned this entire tirade I went on solo style on a podcast that has not been released because I thought yeah. of this word. I was thinking of this word virtue and I thought that that's almost meaningless to me at this point. I don't think of any uh political actor. I don't think of any No, well, that's the last the very person. few well, it shouldn't be very few political people, very few public figures even that I that I associate with the idea of virtue because it sounds like this kind of old old term which it is and so we're going to go into the etymology of it well, a little bit and this quickly is, oh, please the interesting mm-hmm. thing about you say virtue is that it reminds me of i was like i was thinking when is the last time i've heard anyone even speak of this and then i did remember but it's a funny it's a funny thing because actually the most common usage of the word virtue is as part of a phrase virtue signaling which is actually oh, right. the subversion of the real kind of virtue it's the kind of uh it, it's in a way, I mean, it's it's obviously a superficial idea. It's that you're going to demonstrate your virtueness for the sake of uh, being considered virtuous, rather than what true virtue would be, would be to be honorable to f- in doing something honorable as a as a kind of commitment to one's values or to one's honor, rather than to for the sake of receiving that honor which in and of itself would not be virtuous that's the idea if you are only honorable for the sake of receiving those honors then you're not that honorable at all because when the time comes that you need to be honorable and there is no honors for you to gain from it you won't be honorable the problem is that you're using the the sense of it's not a problem you're correct you're using the sense of the word virtue which we all think of from the circa the year 1200, moral life and conduct. But now I'm going to take this farther back. Oh. I'm going to go far back. We're going to go, we're going to range wildly throughout history today. I I'm love to go, range we're wildly. Take, we're going to go through all kinds of different things. So right now I'm going to take you back to Republican Rome and this, this idea of virtue and its original, part of its original meaning, the VR, V-I-R meaning of it. Mm-hmm is associated particularly with manliness this is going to be man because already banned from youtube well look there's nothing i can do this is words <laughs> vir vir in latin is a is a human that is specifically a man homo which is latin also as like homo sapien as you mm-hmm. like however um that is a person 
that could be a man or a woman. Now, people get confused a little bit about etymology because they, they also then think of, well, we don't have to go through all this. There's a Greek word also, but then it doesn't matter. The point is, word of the podcast can get, can get, uh, can be derailed. I derail myself sometimes in the word of the podcast by ranging too wildly through etymology. It's hard to range, you know, somewhat wildly without going too far off into the wilderness. It's hard to range responsibly. It's hard to range wildly responsibly. Exactly. But we do our best here at this podcast. All right. So <laughs> I call it this podcast because yeah, I forget yeah. the name of it sometimes. <laughs> That's not good. That's it's not the good Silver Eye Society. Justin. Follow us or whatever. I don't know. What do people say? Brand. Enter brand. Okay. Moving on. So the word of the podcast, moral life and conduct is what we think of as virtue. Okay. But, but. It derives from an original Latin root that is specifically male. Now, why do I talk about this? Because today we're going to be talking very specifically about an extremely hyper-masculine figure in the film, Dr. Strangelove. I just call it Dr. Strangelove. I don't bother you with all that. Please don't say the whole thing the whole time, no. Right. This is I just had to introduce it. Exactly. We're going to be kind of honed in on a specific character out of this movie, and this is all going to come together. Believe. I it believe. Will. You know, All right. I like the idea of virtue as the word of the podcast because I think that's one of the major problems in a way. And now I know that I'm using this in the the more modern sense of virtue as being an indication of some kind of moral uh, moral strength or respectability. But um, that is that's what I see. That's how I understand it. So I think it's an apt word to kind of dig into for today because really whatever we have, it's not either the original meaning or the previous modern meaning. Virtue now, I think it's almost, there. there's a problem with all these things is that anything that rings slightly of tradition or the past is uh, looked down upon for the most part in our society because it's such a, a youth-centric society and so suspicious of uh, tradition and the older structures and ideas but if that's how you think this podcast is going to put you in a grave because we're going far back today so why don't you take back. it away so there are some there's some reason to be concerned about some of these older traditions what i'm trying to do is we're going to look at this character uh in dr strange love and i think a lot of people look at him General Jack the Ripper. A lot of people look at him and think he's simply insane. That that could be true. Uh, the first time I, I watched the movie, that's what I thought. When I first watched the movie, I you know there's the idea of he starts with the water that you know they're putting stuff in the water, and I was like, ah, oh, okay, this character is supposed to be insane because that's kind of the the cliche conspiracy theorist line that something's in the water. You know, very um, paranoia, paranoia. Mm -hmm. So it, it can but, lead you to write off the character really uh, pretty quickly from the beginning without giving him any due. Even within the film, the president in the film says, has he gone insane, basically? And, and I'm not saying that he didn't. What I'm trying to say is I'm going to try to explain. I'm going to try to explain the depths of his insanity and the different the different dimensions of his insanity. And I'm going to do that by ranging wildly through history so here's the thing i only drink rainwater and pure grain alcohol 
You or General Jack Ripper? I don't give a lot of health advice online, and I'm not going to give health advice now. But, but, if, if, if. you were to be, uh, if you were to drink alcohol, you know, and if you wanted to get, if you wanted to stay hydrated, you could do worse. Yeah, you, know? you could. I mean, most people do. You could do worse. Most people do. Purity of essence. We got to start. We got to start way back. We're going to. Oh, we're going to go everywhere. Okay, here's the thing. <laughs> the actor that plays this character, as I was, I was researching, his name is Sterling Hayden. Mm. Now, he was actually a, uh, he was in World War II. Interesting mm. story. He uh, joined the army, I think. Actually, I think injured his ankle during uh, training. So was discharged then made up a, a but still wanted to go fight so he made up a fake name and then re-enlisted in the marines got accepted and then and then was, ended up in what is called the OSS which is the precursor to the CIA these were the people that did a lot of type of uh, covert special operations type stuff in World War II now specifically what he was doing was this, this is the real actor that played this character he was running supplies from Italy uh, over to uh, what is the former Yugoslavia. Uh, mm-hmm. He was doing that because guess who was fighting Hitler over there? A guy named Marshal Tito. We call him Marshal mm. Tito. Tito. That was a <laughs> strongman communist leader who was fighting the Nazis. So what's mm-hmm. funny is this guy's playing a, a hardcore anti-communist, the actor. He was yeah. actually awarded in real history. He was awarded the Order of Merit by the communist leader, Marshal Tito, who was ostensibly during World War II on our side, the Allies' side, because he was fighting Germany. Mm-hmm. A little bit of trivia for you that I found interesting. But the guy does bring, the actor brings a certain kind of uh, Well, actors used to be much more interesting. True. And, and he, he, brings a, he brings a kind of believability to this... Uh, Mil- militaristic feel i think so anyway, yeah. i was doing a little bit of uh doing a little bit of looking into that and what i was trying to i was trying to get my mind around is this idea of his concern about the pollution of his body not only through i now now we're back in the film we're out of real history we're talking mm-hmm. about the film yeah the general is concerned with the pollution of communist ideology and the very real physical pollution of his body uh, with, in particular in this, is fluoridated water. All right. Now, that was a real hi- historical thing that happened. But, but that's we're going we're gonna to go farther back. We're going to go farther back and then we'll end up with Florida, uh, water with Florida. Florida, Florida water. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably a lot of fluoride in Florida water. Probably. Um, People used okay. to be so, genuinely against fluoridated water, and I think there are still some hippies that are not into it, you know? There are, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of one of those, those, uh, how would you say, quintessential conspiracy markers. Do I know a lot about fluoridated water? I don't. I don't. So I can't say for sure whether it's wrong or not. 
I can't say that. Should we take a stance? Should we just take a stance on anti-fluoride water? No, 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 God knows. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that'll probably get you canceled today too. Like they're against fluoridated water. It's racist or something like somehow. I have no opinion on fluoridated water. Unlike General Jack Ripper. He's against it. That's why he drinks rainwater. Um, But... Okay, so that was a real thing that happened. But I want to I want to start I think somewhat chronologically through trying to understand why this guy is the way he is. Mm-hmm. So going back to virtue, this idea that virtue which is required for a Republican government, and I'm not talking about Republican the political party or Democratic the Democrat the political party. I'm talking about the idea of a, a republic. And this yeah. we're in we're in Rome before the Caesar, so the Roman Republic required virtue. And you see the early uh, American uh, forefathers saying the same thing, is that, that Republican government requires virtue in the leaders. Okay, mm-hmm. so now, so, so the Romans made a god called Virtus, which you will find today on the Virginia state flag. Think hmm. about that. This is beyond trivia. Don't think this is just trivia. Don't just it's don't not. take that it's and history. say, "Oh, now I got some trivia." Don't, I got some trivia to throw out. You need to ask yourself why there's a Roman god on the Virginia state flag, Commonwealth of Virginia, as you like. Anyway, I ask myself. We should ask ourselves that. But I have no answer. So, so there is there is in the in the Roman mind there is. A specifically male uh, energy, we'll say, mm. that is personified into a god that is required to run a republic. All right, so that's that's one thing. Let's set that aside for a moment. Okay. Now we got to talk about why why it is that there is this sense of uh we gotta talk about the body politic are you ready so the body politic is really kind of a confusing subject for me because it sounds so reminiscent of things that people talk about now which is important to make a distinction between body politics and the body politic so That's body correct. politics is largely unrelated to this, correct? It's not within the purview of this discussion to try to uh, relate it to this. There could be, there, are, there, there may be some aspects of it for sure that are, but no, what I'm trying to get at is this idea that, mm-hmm. and, and we can think of it in the movie, okay, that what is the body politic? It is the um, personification of a nation within a collection of leaders. And if that collection of leaders, uh, representatives, are somehow uh, polluted or fouled from, in, uh, from outside influences, the nation itself can suffer consequences. So maybe it's time to skip from Republican Rome to the Napoleonic age. Is it or is it not? You take the wheel. Are you, are you ready to talk about gymnasts? 
I'm actually extremely ready because this is something I only briefly know about. I, 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 I had this, I don't know, memory or somehow this information that uh, the Germans were really into gymnastics. But that's kind of it. I don't really know where that comes from, what it means, all of that. So I'm going to try to do this without looking at notes a lot, which means I'm going to I'm going to screw it up to some degree. But you got to keep me. Uh, you got to help me explain to the people as I start to veer off and go on the tangents. You got to rein me in, okay? To to keep it to keep this. I need uh, more coffee for that. Comprehensible. I, I'm I'm on a lot of coffee right now, and rainwater. Up. I make my coffee yeah. with rainwater. That I should like so sell a coffee. Though. Don't everybody that, make? Oh, doesn't everyone make like energy drinks? And we should like make our own coffee brand. But it's, well, that doesn't even make sense. Water. How I mean, we can't. That. What are we going to sell the water? Yeah, that's what you do. You'd sell like a ten dollar bottle of rainwater or whatever next to it for like yeah. one serving of coffee. That's true. That's the yeah. plan. All right. We're really coming Keep up with in a lot touch of with ideas. us, guys. We'll get that for you soon. That rainwater coffee. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be called Purity of Essence Cafe. I mean, it sounds pretty awesome. The Purity of Essence Cafe. <laughs> so what I did recently, foolishly perhaps, is I read a book about the history of Prussia from the year 1600 to 1947. And it was about 700 pages and it took a long time. It was, it was rough going. But anyway, one of, one of the things that I, I got from it is, let me take you back to Prussia in the early 1800s. Napoleon... He's French. He's Korsakin, mm-hmm. but he's leading a French army. Okay. Prussia thinks Prussia thinks we can beat anybody basically because they've gotten a very they have a very uh, highly efficient modern military. So now I'm not going to go into the details of this a great deal, but basically Prussia gets beat by Napoleon initially. Okay. So what Napoleon? Time, here, let me ask some dumb questions. When did Prussia exist? Because Prussia doesn't exist anymore. So let's give me the historical, oh you know, when, when You're are we really, talking are about? you sure? Are you sure we want to get into this? Because I'll go, I'll go. No, don't. That's not the proper response. <laughs> give me a date because Prussia stopped existing at some point. So what century Prussia stopped are we existing. In? Okay. Prussia stopped existing officially. Yeah. In, I think the year 1947 after the defeat of the Nazis, because Oh boy, this gets really complicated. Okay, don't Brandenburg. <laughs> okay, don't. okay, okay. So, so we'll we'll talk we'll we'll talk about Prussia as basically just think of it as basically around sixteen hundred, if you want. Okay, there you All go. Right, because it's it is the unity of uh, of Brandenburg, which is a region in what is today Berlin, with then what is today an, an exclave of Russia called Kaliningrad, but which used to be Polish basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then slowly over the centuries, the Prussian monarchs, which were all mainly named William mm-hmm. uh, or Wilhelm, uh, they bring in more and more territory. I mean, that's the thing about history is that these kingdoms, these regions change over time. So, they, there's the Silesian Wars. They take over a part of what is like kind of near Austria. And, and these these countries, because they're not countries, and this, this gets into what I'm getting ready to say. It's not a mm. nation. 
and how we talk about it. it's not a nation yeah so, that's a, an so important brain- thing is the nation is uh well i mean are you talking about like the nation state concept of a unified culture right. within boundaries let me put it let me do it this way napoleon beats the prussians okay okay napoleon takes some of their territory away from them napoleon then has the bright idea to go invade russia russia not prussia bad idea napoleon some of you will know why that was a bad idea. It was cold, number one, and it's a long way away. We're not going to go into that. History uh, enthusiasts will know Napoleon got beat in Russia. So Napoleon starts marching his his ragged, destroyed army back across Europe, and then is on his way back is going to cross Prussia. Now the monarch of Prussia is a monarch. He cares about his, his crown. His he doesn't. It's not the sense of. There is no Germany. Germany as a state doesn't occur until 1871. Okay, so so the monarch is kind of like, well, I made this treaty with Napoleon. I'm not sure there is one way to beat him as he comes back from Moscow. And the way to do it is to do essentially what Napoleon did, which is to draft common people into the army. But see, a monarch is always at this time is always a little wary to be drafting commoners into the army because what happens when you put a bunch of guns in a bunch of commoners' hands? The mon the, we know the crown well itself, in the states. The yeah, the crown <laughs> itself can be jeopardized, and there's this whole there's this whole. I mean, yeah, we can't go into this because this this has to do with with the idea of nobility and how the nobility plays into the crown and the different levels. Can of we society. not go but into it? I I feel like okay, so. Okay, fine. <clears throat> there is a general. There is a general. I guess I should talk about since I read 700 pages of this and it was really hard to, to read. So there is a general at the time who says to himself, I'm going to kind of ignore what the, the Prussian monarch says because the Prussian monarch says, kind of stand down, let Napoleon come back across Prussia. We've, you know. But this guy sees the opportunity to beat Napoleon on his way back because he's already been beaten by the Russians. And he essentially starts to collect an army of of what is called free corps people. But that's a translation from German. And then that later becomes something totally different in World War I and World War II. But but so the monarch's not – the monarch wasn't saying good idea do this because, again, he's afraid of the power – of yeah. common people having weapons, and and that that plays into this burgeoning nationalism. We we take national we take the nation for granted right now. Yeah. Again, there was no Germany at this time, right? You have German speaking peoples, but you have the Kingdom of Bavaria. You have the obviously the Austrian, uh, the Habsburg monarchy. You know, in in Vienna, ruling multinational states also german-speaking people in in austria you have the the kingdom of saxony these are all these kingdoms mm-hmm. which ultimately get uh, under prussian leadership get brought together in a series of wars in the 1860s 1870s to become the german nation but these ideas of nationhood are already starting at this time okay and so this is what has to do with gymnasts great one of the guys after the defeat a few years prior to this by Napoleon, the, they were there was a kind of humiliation set in. Oh, we got beat by Napoleon. So so he creates these gymnasiums, which which were to uh, reinvigorate. It was it was supposed to make strong 
the bodies and the virtues and moral morality of the German people that joined them in these gymnast associations. And they wore these gymnast uniforms and they, 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 they performed these uh, exercises essentially. And there was this link, this is all coming back to the body politic. There was a link between the strength of the individual human body and how the, those individual human bodies would then form a collective and then that collective would have a collective identity as a nation. So this so is where you this start got, getting the beginning, the foundation of nationalism. It, yeah, it it, it 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 takes place in different places in Europe at different times, but but the 1800s is certainly ultimately going to be the big century for this. It's an uh, interesting thing that it's kind of because um, I mean I think it's important to see that collectivist ethos can occur on various sides of the political spectrum and it seems like there's different routes to stoking collectivist sentiment and this idea of what I thought was interesting about the idea of the body politic via the individual's body as somehow a, a part of a larger whole and that make, making the individual's bodies uh, the, the body of an individual the health of that important to the health of the whole and that's a really interesting yeah. way to look at that uh, to, to see how you can approach a collectivist mentality for a group in this case a nation through the body, the physical body of the individual. And I think in a way, it's not something so radical or something so strange because, of course, what is a more primal and more more uh, communal than the human body? Everyone has one and everyone, to some degree, cares about the state of their body. So it seems like it's almost ripe in some ways for being tapped into as a way to perhaps not always just stoke collectivism, though that is what this kind of body politic uh, ends up being. So I, I, part of me wants to talk about Donald Trump eating Big Macs, but I need to go back to Prussia. Okay. Okay. So put that on so, ice. Put that Big yeah. Mac on ice. Because because we're going to see, I think what I'll do is end with some examples of what we see today. You don't think about it this you way, but it is the way it is. That the political leaders have theaters of these theatrics of strength. Yeah. And you'll see it. In, okay, I'm off. I'm going off. Back no, to no, Prussia. No, no, so okay. this, I need to be in Prussia. I got to okay. be in Prussia. All right. I just don't want to forget that because I think there is a, I think it's a weird thing because again, uh, especially in individualist culture that we are in, we don't necessarily identify the body of our fellow people as somehow part of our own nation's health. I mean, there really is not even this idea of nationalism, patriotism, or collectivism in the United States unless it is subgroups that organize themselves into their own identity. And... Um, I keep wanting to come back to body politics, but maybe I shouldn't. Because I mean, I just think there's an almost a natural inclination to stoke collectivist, um, 
sentiments with people and i think that the body is one way but i think it's so it's so different from it's so such a different avenue uh than than we take in an individualist culture right now because we don't look i mean we are a very diverse nation that's the difference uh, a, a nation state and nationalism for the most part requires at least one dominant shared identity and i think the united states right no you don't think so mm, that's the hope that it doesn't that's the hope of america that's the hope of america well, no, i think no, you should no, clip no, no, that no, no. because this is the thing you would have your national dominant identity would be american you would identify as an american and that would be the positive form of nationalism which is doesn't matter your race doesn't matter your religion doesn't matter your whatever other differences you can have you're still an american which is part of what may has made the united states successful for the long haul in having so many diverse people is because that type of nationalism actually has worked people do come here from a completely different background the other side of the world completely different religion have a child and that child is american and they feel part of america now of course they're is this has come under tension more than ever now. Um, and I think that in some regards, you can blame the kind of identity politics that we see today that breaks off groups into smaller identities. And many times these groups tend to attack the idea of American identity or a larger shared identity, and they prefer to recede into a smaller group. But... Um, Oftentimes that requires rejecting participation in a different identity. And, you know, that's a hard thing because there's the idea that, well, you want to come to a country, you want to immigrate, you want to immigrate, but you don't want to completely transform yourself. You want to be able to maintain your uh, your identity as an individual, your your background, all that. But there does need to be a degree to which you accept the a new identity that of the new country that you're in because that's what ties everybody together that shared identity that shared fate in a sense where well we're all in the same boat so we all are in a way maybe we disagree about how we get there but we're all rooting for the boat to succeed and to keep you know to keep afloat once you start to divide that boat into different sections well then you know does it stay afloat go back to prussia <sighs> this guy love that creates these gymnast this movements guy. i mean i can get do you he want his actual name. names i mean i so think that you'll all me, remember you it know, if we're going to talk about history to this degree you should give people a name they'll forget it i always forget it when i watch stuff like this and i'm like oh this guy started the gymnast movement and in Germany, great, and then you forget it, especially like some super German name or something. You're gonna forget it. Well, but this is a super. Anyway. This is a super. It's like uh, Jürgen, German name, which, <laughs> to, I already to be that I I had forgotten it and I didn't try and do this without notes for some reason. So, uh, okay, hmm. so and they got. Uh, so this is the Fred guy. F Friedrich. Frederick Friedrich Ludwig Jan. That is okay. very German. <laughs> it's free German. All right. So he is the, the, the founder of the gymnastic move, movement. Mm. Uh, he's the Turnvater, the father of gymnastics, apparently. Love that. All and right. When anyway, was this? so 
we're talking about early 1800s. How about okay. that? We'll just keep it in a very simple, simple way. I think 1807 may have been when when Napoleon beat the Prussians the first time. I'm not, I'm not sure. But anyway, okay. So oh, okay. we're in Prussia. We're back in Prussia. The monarch is is uh, hesitating. He doesn't know what to do. Should he attack Napoleon? Should he not? He's not sure. This guy, not the gymnast movement, though he he joined one of these uh, bodies of common nationalistic type uh, military orders. And this other general, though, says we're going to attack. And he writes a letter to the king and he says, uh, if you have to execute me after this, I accept that. Absolutely fine. I'm doing this because I think it's in the best interest of the nation and the crown and I think that you'll see that I'm right, but I accept my punishment if this was wrong. So he essentially gets together uh, a band. Hmm? This happens in history? This is real, yeah. Oh, this is yeah, the exact same thing that happens in the movie. There's going to be a lot of things that we're pulling together wow. here. And some of it's going to come out on accident. But political suicide is another thing we'll talk about, that's, which I just... Yeah, that's- which I just mentioned, but I didn't really think about until well, I even said it there. Well, the idea of the acceptance so, of fate, yeah, like I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna supersede my authority, or you, or you know what I mean. Um, I'm going to surpass the the person I'm I'm supposed to be uh, directed by, in hopes of doing something right for that person, for the nation, essentially, and then accepting any punishment that that comes afterwards that's exactly what general ripper does in the movie but there is no so in prussia at this time there is no this is just the beginning of the idea of a nation and so right now you are a subject of the crown the whole hohenzollern monarchy okay but so anyway so this general then he in result is he does it he gets the army together they beat napoleon that's what happens this then puts into play a bunch of other forces which play out over the 19th century in Prussia and Germany uh, that ends up in the result of, of a, a nation. But my point about the gymnast movement and the founder, Ludwig's whatever, yeah. uh, his, his, his idea, remember he's, he's founding this during the time when they've been defeated, before they yeah. they end up coming back and being Napoleon, he's saying we must make the body of the people strong and the moral virtues of the people strong through the practice of exercising in gymnasiums in order to form a nation and in order to uh, defeat our enemies. Now, that is what I'm – this is – I'm trying to make all these analogies to the idea of the body politic and then tie that in with this, this idea of why does the general – why is he so afraid of being, why is he drinking rainwater? All right. So I think that I've, I think we've dealt with Prussia enough. Yeah. I think you get the point, right? This guy, this guy starts a gym. You wouldn't think that a gymnastic movement would have anything to do with the political movement, but it mm-hmm. did. And no, that, the reason. The reason that it does is because it has to do with this concept of the strength of the body of the people. Uh, anyway, j- as a side note, this this gymnastic movement actually uh, takes root in America through German immigration through the oh. 1800s and, and especially in the north. Now, this isn't a particularly this wasn't a particularly for the time conservative movement because Classical liberalism is actually tied up with the idea of nationalism in a lot of ways, but that's we're 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 off 
we're we're going too far there. So, so <laughs> the next the next phase, I guess, we need to talk about in history is probably the 1950s to bring us back around to understanding this character in the film. There was a real, and it was it was generally associated with the right wing. Uh, there was a concern with municipalities adding fluoride to the water. That didn't occur until the until the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. It didn't happen. That that was a new thing occurring. That's all happening in the context of the Red Scare and this and and the Cold War that's that's taken root right after World War Two. So, and I mean, I, I, I didn't go into researching the specifics of every little idea behind it. But so there was a broader idea, a paranoid idea that that adding an ingredient to the water supply was a communist plot meant to weaken the bodies and the minds of the nation. Hmm. Now, again, that's what I'm trying to get at is there's this there's this tie in between the idea, the ideology of communism coming from outside a foreign area and the very physical, real attack on the bodies and minds of people, okay, through the use of uh, what people think of as a chemical. It's actually a natural element, fluoride. But the way the fluoride is used to add to the water was not done through natural uh, ways. It's a byproduct, I guess, of some sort of industrial procedure. That's, again, maybe too much detail. It doesn't matter. But so one aspect of this was that people were saying, well, look, you have this massive stockpile of fluoride in these water uh, cleaning facilities. What if subversive agents, communists, came in and instead of adding a small amount of fluoride to the water supply, was supposed to happen, they just dumped all of it in and poisoned the water supply. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's one thing that you can kind of see. Okay, well, I mean. Uh, I get that the reasoning behind that. That's that's a little separate from the idea that fluoride in itself yeah. added to the water supply was a communist plot meant to uh, weaken the bodies and minds of Americans and make them more amenable to to communist ideology. Now remember, at the same time, under Truman, we're getting some of the the beginnings. Uh, well, not the beginnings, but we're talking about socialized medicine at this time in, in the United States history. And this all ties into that. And this all ties into the idea of uh, individualism and and the body and all that kind of stuff. These 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 concepts are linked to some degree. Well, you know, what's interesting also is that I think in some regards watching this movie um it kind of puts you in an interesting it's it's an interesting way to go back in history a little bit and which is the the right way to understand history i personally think is to always try to understand the mindset and the psychology of the time period that you're trying to study uh rather than just read the facts and and then try to like somehow um how would you say it's not it's i guess it's ethnocentric in a way it's it's uh to look back at history and judge it by their own standards but it's also in a way time centric era centric where we we use our own times culture um to look back at a different time and kind of try to understand it through our own time and that's flawed in a lot of ways and i think um this movie is a good way to look back at a not super far off uh time period in history and see how different the mindset was in regards to what the enemy was because you had a time when largely 
people were concerned about foreign enemies. And I think that that's definitely something that you don't really see a lot of today. The concern is so much more with the strife and the enemies on one's own territory, one's own, uh, the, the, the differing political groups within one's own country are the enemy. You have seen a little bit of that return to a paranoia about the Russians. And in some regard, the Chinese, the Chinese, the CCP, and that's the only, but that's still pretty limited to certain, certain political fringe groups. I think either you're super hardcore worried about China or you're like this, you know, everything that Trump does has been some kind of Russian plant and it's not, um, not a more widespread focus on what enemies outside our country threaten our country, which during this time period of the movie, that was the main focus, was external enemies. And for a lot of the United States history prior to that, it was more that. But of course, we had more wars and things like that. The wars we have now are so are fought so differently that I don't think there's they elicit that same fear of uh, a foreign government coming onto our soil and affecting our people in the same way that people once worried about. It's an interesting this thing. This is to where say our age difference shows. I think this is where our age difference shows in a great deal because, number one, I, as a child, had nightmares of nuclear war. And I, I will never forget a particular instance where I had a nightmare of, of absolute nuclear destruction and uh, went running across the field uh, crying because it seemed so real to me. That happened. The people in the mid-'80s, early-'80s, were were afraid that the entire world was going to be destroyed. There was a particular really? movie that came out, like a made-for-television movie that came out that kind of showed what would happen if there was a nuclear war. And uh, I think I sometimes say nuclear, like super Southern, like George W. Bush, like nuke, nuke. Do I say it right? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I, it sounds anyway, right so far. Fine. <laughs> so you nuclear? don't remember this. You no, don't remember don't. this. Right, but you're saying, you're like living in this po- this well, world that's the thing. There's a lot of people that the are Cold in my War. generation that right, do right. not conceive at all of some type of out external annihilation, some type of foreign enemy that could cause, uh, you know, destruction to their nation and their people. It's more, you know, well, my neighbor is the enemy, which whatever, that's not entirely always wrong. There are real problems within everybody's own country, but it's a different, it's a very different perspective from previous generations that, and, and farther back in history that, Really, countries were against other countries. It was not so much. I mean, because historically, if your country was as divided against itself as our country is now, it is. It's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. And um, it's not that. But you're you're also forgetting about nine eleven. Again, you yeah, know, but I'm 9/11 a little, I'm was a little different. older. Nine eleven was different. No, it was, it was a the fear of it. Okay, I know it wasn't a government, but you're yeah. you're you're. I don't think we ought to forget that that caused some hysteria that caused 20 years of war that's not over that caused the patriot act that caused all these different things i was i mean uh, that it's i, I understand that it's same. not a, i know that of course that, there was a time of paranoia afterwards but it wasn't the same as you know uh 
like the fear of a communist infiltration or nuclear destruction and things like that. It was much more uh, limited to the one event. Also, I think that's because it was one event as opposed to a longer war. Um, and it, it's it's a, it's a different thing because it, it is in a way a mark of the way that warfare has changed because, yeah, it wasn't a government per se, but you can even set that aside. The thing is, it was a it was a single attack. It was a one off attack, which can be in its own thing, you know, obviously elicit paranoia and fear. But when you already know that you're in an ongoing battle with a country and the more traditional forms of war, I feel like it has um, a different effect on the population than this kind of like one off terror event. It's I think there's there's a different characterization of it. I understand, but I don't agree with you. And the reason I don't is because I I clearly remember a time when the idea that you would be monitored by the government in the interest of safety was foreign to most people. And then yeah. after 9-11, that, that has become just an accepted idea by the well, large parts of the population. I remember a time before... Well, of course, you're, yeah. You're, no, 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 no. I understand that also. But here's the thing. That's a different. I think that's a little bit different because now we're talking about the way governments use uh, tragedy as a power grab, which we've already seen that happen. Every time there's a kind of panicked event, every time there's a, a, a hysteria or an outrage, government will take that take advantage of that situation of the momentum to roll back freedoms uh personally that's what i think was done by tech companies over donald trump and tweeting that was a perfect example of not in per se a, a foreign enemy uh but the same pattern where you have massive outrage over um what was it that everybody was mad about with him that that got oh it was the the capital riots that's what it was so somehow he came to be almost criminally blamed for the actions of other people through direct i mean indirect indirect incitation which is a big problem that i don't think people give enough credit to i don't care if i get on this podcast and i start saying you know love you guys go home that's not a direct incitation to violence I don't care. But that's what not what they says. were. Okay, that but that was that he is, said that after that, giving an hour long speech about let's go to march. To, to the, I don't want to get into the, the but specifics that's what every of that. Politician but politician does. Every politician says like we're gonna. You're on my side. We're together. We're gonna fight corruption. We're gonna change things. We're together. We're gonna fight against all these other enemies that are trying to bring down the idea that we have for greatness. That's what every politician does. I mean, at least the less scrupulous ones, the ones that are more willing to rile up people in service of a small golden utopianistic goal which is always the the marker of a demagogue that you should be wary of but you know that 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 lack of nuance and that more using rhetoric instead is politicians that's politicians for you but the my, my point is that you had the same situation where there was a heightened tension, a heightened fear. I mean, you had the National Guard deployed. You had people uh, saying that this was going to be bloodshed in the streets after that the riot was going to keep on going. It was going to be this m massive thing. And so in response to that, well, we're going to have uh, a private company 
remove that uses a, uh, has a service that's essentially at this point a public like a utility it's one it's the most one of the most democratic forms of communication we have right now and we're allowing them to treat it like it's some kind of luxury good when it's exactly what people use every day to get their news about what's going on in the world so i mean that wouldn't fly for other more public forms of communication like the phone companies but this is a new a new time where we're still trying to figure out what a digital service like this is and whether it is something that should be treated as a public utility. I think it should be because if you're going to use it to get your news on a daily basis and you're going to use it to communicate about the world and many ways people are using it to organize um, against injustices, to, to monitor things like if there's issues with police brutality, that's what's been used to get that out, which would otherwise die in the shadows. So if you believe in having it used for there for that kind of situation, then you don't want to give the company the power to pick and choose what they take off and on at will. But in a moment of, you know, heightened anger and fear and anxiety, that's the perfect moment when a power comes in and says, oh, we'll fix it for you. Let's just roll back these freedoms. And that's the same thing that happened with the Patriot Act. People were afraid. People were uh, angry. And that is exactly the moment when people are most willing to but the perspective is warped by that anger and that fear and so we're very very susceptible to accepting um quote-unquote protection in that moment that costs us freedoms so i don't know i don't think necessarily i think there's other elements of that you know talking about the patriot act that uh that can tra that can transcend you know, the, the fear of foreign enemies that can happen right at home. That's kind of like a human failure, if anything. <coughs> Excuse me. The rainwater uh, <laughs> went down or up. So, okay. I, 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 I can't deal with 9-11 and going? the to Trump Prussia? thing and all that. What I, I will say this. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union, to the best of my knowledge, didn't didn't strike American soil. <coughs> and on 9-11, there was, I don't know what, over 5,000 casualties, three to 5,000 casualties. I don't even know what it is anymore. It's weird that I can't remember what it is. Uh, mm, yeah. On the American homeland, dead people. So, yeah, well, of yeah course. that was real. I mean, that was a, that was a, a, a real attack. I, a little bit, uh, I drank a lot of rainwater, so I'm a little bit. I forget why I was talking about 9/11. Well, I don't know why I went from Prussia well, to 9/11. We're talking us. I was talking about the the way that we the country used to have a little bit more. Like if you go back um, a few decades back, you were talking about you know the more real fear of nuclear nuclear destruction, and right. I think that you know. Well, I get. I totally get. You know, 9/11 as an example of. Uh, um, like a kind of return to that fear of the the foreign enemy. I, I think there's something different about it in that it's like it was a one-off terror attack, whereas like the Cold War was kind of was like this this constant, longer, looming uh, possibility they're of destruction. Sure, sure, they're different. And I'm I, not trying I, I to say. I don't know. I don't think <clears> even the United States. I don't think most Americans at that time, at least, had the same kind of um, relationship 
in their mind to um I mean where did where did the terror attacks originate again was it like I mean it was it's kind of foggy even you know where do they come from because they maybe they came from a country they they trained here but then it seems like Saudi Arabia had something to do with it and then you know but they were but some of them were from different places or something so it's not even like you can say that it's like this is an attack from this one I understand country. it was a non-state you know I mean? actor it's a I understand it was a non-state to... actor yeah kind of non-state actor I mean that, that is debate I think it's debatable there's but you know debatable for the, for the about argument. how much yeah I, okay uh, no more 9-11 we'll we'll, we'll move <laughs> yeah, away from that because i mean what are we gonna do to start talking about yeah, yeah. I don't. <laughs> it's 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 um let's go back to history but not recently. well this history. is the thing we were talking about how you you know you are from a time when there was still uh, a fear of <laughs> you are from a time long ago <laughs> it's just weird to me i'm, I'm listening that i've never yeah, experienced it's weird that. to me yeah, it's weird to me because it's not like there's a huge age difference here, and like I mean, it's not huge, no, you know, a huge age difference. I'm only I'm only 23, you know. <laughs> and here's the thing: I just you know I drink a lot of bad rainwater. All right, so here's the thing: um, when I was 23, I made a TikTok <laughs> about my fears of nuclear destruction. <laughs> I was a very small child and I and yeah. I guess it's hard for me to explain uh how truly terrified people were or maybe I was just a child no, that was scared the, the, of nuclear his, weapons for I don't is, think that's the case. It's very like, real about that. Uh, yeah, that's okay, what this so movie's part about is that kind of fear right. that spreads through the whole entire culture. And then so so let's go back to the, the character in this film and try to understand, again, keep on making these analogies and keep on trying to get to this idea of uh, why is he why is he concerned with his purity of essence? Yeah. And why is that why is that wrapped up into this hyper masculinity and, and, and uh, patriotism? Because I think I've I think I've kind of tried to set out a little bit in terms of the very old idea of virtus and the, the and virtue and these ideas of virtue that come all the way back from Republican Rome, uh, I've kind of we've kind of traced that a little bit, and now we've gone back to to early early nationalist movements in in Prussia and tried to explain this idea of the health of the human body, the individual's human body, and how that relates to the body politic and the health of the. The, the nation, growing nation or state, which, mm -hmm. by the way, is an extremely dangerous idea, which I'm not endorsing in any way. I'm just trying to explain these things, okay? Because it yeah. it plays out in some very bad ways in the German lands later, yeah. okay? Some of these some of these things. So so now I also want to briefly we we're touching on the the real historical thing that happened with paranoia about fluoride in the water supply in the 1950s. That is a real thing that happened. It was mainly a right-wing kind of thing, and it was associated with a fear of communism. Fifth columnist, the idea that there are communists within the nation uh, hiding out, uh, ready to strike. I mean, there's a whole history to this that we can't go into with the Red Scare, with, you know, um, with... with uh, blacklisting in Hollywood of people that were considered yeah, communists, all that. that kind of stuff. McCarthyism, thank you. We're not going to do that. But so, so what I am going to now 
I think finish on with this this character. I think I've, I've brought it together a little bit. This idea of the link between the physical body and the the body of a nation. Mm-hmm. There's another there's another thing that happens in this film, which is that he his plan fails, right? Or he thinks his plan fails for the first strike in the first strike on Russians in the film Dr. Strangelove. He's under attack. This 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 general is under attack uh, by his own <laughs> units of his own army within the film, right? And another thing we want to talk about is that you have what's so brilliant about this, the movie is really something. It's really um, incredible. All of the conversations between this American general are played off of a British uh, RAF, Royal Air Force attache type uh, Mm -hmm. person who's over there. And he, if you notice, there's this kind of dichotomy between this hyper-masculine American general and this more careful British, uh, British figure, which I think has to do with a lot of different things, but it has to do with there's always this sense from Americans, especially a while back longer, that the British, a certain type of class of British people are, are maybe slightly, this is, this is going to be, I want to be careful with my words. Effeminate is not the right word. That's not what I'm trying to say exactly. I was going to say but that. refined, this is the perception. It's not my perception. Uh, ultra refined, uh, careful, British kind well, of kind of like stereotype, softness, really. You know, like they're soft. They're it, soft. It, yeah, it's funny because it's really it's real, very, it's very like, wrong. It's very, very wrong. But but this that gets tied up with the ideas of, well, you know, we used to be a British thing. colony. We fought the British. Have, um, there was all this. American We're a frontier culture. country. They're yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the thing. Like American culture also. And, and you have this with all many different cultures, what they view as being powerful or masculine or... or righteous or honorable changes and so it's interesting to see how that that a lot of that view uh, like that stereotypical view that you know oh the this british officer is kind of like not necessarily inept like he's clearly not stupid but he hasn't it's almost like he has a little bit of trouble like standing up to the general and the general is this very you know kind of stereotypically macho figure with like a gruff voice and is like come help me and gets this like massive gun and is just ready to shoot out the window and (laughs) you have the the british character like being like i i pulled my my muscle in my leg so i i can't i can't and it's obviously he just doesn't want to go and help the general, but it's in this way of instead of being like, I'm not going to do that. You have to kill me before I do. You know, it's kind of this like, I'm hurt. Sorry. So it's this interesting um, kind of almost they're, they're the other side of each other's coin, you know, kind of the ultra masculine figure. And then this like softer figure that can't really totally stand up to the general. There's even this one part where you can see that he he's kind of realizing he doesn't have a choice anymore and that the general is actually keeping him hostage but he's he still wants to you know he's like going to try and he says i command you to give me the keys and the general's like you're not going anywhere and that's kind of where you realize okay that was his that was his last attempt to kind of 
you know, impose his own um, will upon the general. And I think what he does there, actually, if I remember, is he essentially tells him, no, why don't you go make me a drink of rainwater and pure grain alcohol, which is a very (laughs) 1950s conception of what uh, a male boss figure would tell his secretary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why don't you go make Why don't you go make me a drink instead of yeah, yeah. you know telling me what's going to happen here? Now remember, there is also the very real threat of violence. He shows him that he has a he handgun. He shows him so, a gun. Yeah. So, so, but there's this other there's this other thing that's happening, which is that he's a representation of the carefulness of okay. So the British Empire has collapsed at World War II, but the British Empire has had a lot of a lot more history. Uh, uh, dealing with international uh, disputes. And there's there's this kind of dichotomy of the very rash, brash American were the new leaders because they were after World War II. After World War I, it started to happen. After World War II, it was certainly the fact America, in essence, took over the policing of the former, of the world after the British Empire fell apart. So there's, this film... Every single bit of it, you can draw out all these different things and all these different things to understand. Or you can just look at it as a funny, a couple of funny characters. This guy used to play the Pink Panther. He's a funny uh, comedian, and it's a funny situation. You can watch it that way, too, and it's perfectly fine. But so the general, though, is, like you said, bringing out the machine gun. Now, what you see at this point in the movie is that he has resigned himself to his fate. Like, he knows he's dead, right? Like, he kind of knows he's dead regardless. He's put in motion this plan. He believes is right, but he kind of knows he's dead. And the thing is, for better or for worse, he does, he acts, brave is not maybe exactly the right word, but in a sen- in essence it is. He has no fear of death anymore. Yeah. He's just, he's just. And he's oh, resolute to help. what he's decided to do. Right, right. So Which in this some capacity ul- is honorable, but when your aim, perhaps. yeah, yeah, exactly. When your aim, though, right. that's the thing is his aim is is uh, off. So you end up with this, yeah, otherwise virtuous character who misaimed, though he does succeed. Well, well, very somewhat. It, it's complicated. It's hard to. You don't want to. Um, you don't want to. Uh, you want to understand what's happening with this character. You don't necessarily want to endorse it, no. but so don't he, destroy the world. If right, I mean, he is that. essentially trying to kill tens of millions of people with a first strike nuclear capability. Yeah. Not a great thing to do. Okay, so beyond that, we're talking within the confines of the movie. No one here on this podcast is endorsing Plan R. No yeah, one here is endorsing any of those nuclear things. Nuclear warfare right? or so, anything. <laughs> right. We're, but we're talking about the characters. So so you have this kind of great interplay between this masculine force and this somewhat reasoning, mm-hmm. uh, careful British RAF, uh, I don't know what rank he is, but uh, yeah. trying to talk him down from this the whole time. You know, he because you're right, he doesn't forcefully say you're insane general you're out of line you're it's not that he actually tries to it's really kind of and they they get there's there's a couple of moments that are beyond satire and beyond humor that are actually kind of touching when they talk about were you tortured in the war he asks him were you tortured in the war and the british guy 
doesn't want he's always hesitant it's very british you don't want to talk about those types of personal things where the americans are very much just like what happened you know yeah yeah. and so well yes yes i i was captured by the japanese well yes you know this all leads up to the general then deciding to commit suicide now Mm -hmm. it's the last time we'll go back in history for this so it's a it's an act of political suicide all right in republican rome tied in with these notions of virtue was the idea that it was honorable to commit political suicide. So now when you say political suicide today, when we say that word, it doesn't mean literal suicide. It means career. Oh, right. No, that's not what I mean. So it's important to make a distinction that when we talk about political suicide in this context, it's the historical antecedent um to what we talk about today which is political suicide is like oh they passed a bill that's bad that's political suicide you know it's like no what we're talking about is truly just suicide (laughs) but for political reasons so not for political reasons but as protest so so seneca was the roman was a was the roman tutor of the emperor nero Mm -hmm. and they had a falling out and uh he killed himself he seneca killed himself as opposed to falling into the hands of nero or being manipulated by him politically and that was not considered a bad act okay no, today yeah. we generally consider cowardice. suicide negative and we should these are these are harsh topics so yeah, don't kill so, yourself you know no we're this is a very abs we're talking about this in the abstract and historical ways okay isn't it so crazy th- that we have to get on here and constantly be like don't do a nuclear war don't we live in a hard we, world we, <laughs> so you know like yeah but everybody nobody knows that, that. So, to this podcast is probably that much of a fool because it's like once upon a time you could discuss things without treating everyone like some kind of sheep that would immediately be like oh oh i should <laughs> Right. No, I, I and I don't think that's the case now. It's just that no, I don't I think it's feel, the case either. But people do act fuck, like it's I the case. I don't fucking care. YouTube. I don't care. I don't care about the rules. I don't fucking give a shit if Twitter is like you've done a bad thing. I don't care what I'm when I when I say something carefully. I'm saying because I genuinely don't want you know anyone to misconstrue me. That's all. Like yeah, I, I, it, that that's what I really don't want to do. No, I don't think anyone's going to. But so then you have. The figure of Cato the Younger, I think. He's mm-hmm. also Rome. This is the very, very specific example is important. He is... Uh, so, Republican Rome eventually falls to become Imperial Rome, ruled by the Caesar, right? So, the, the Republican system mm-hmm. basically is it co-opted slash uh, no longer there after the Caesar. So, so... Cato the Younger, in a very grotesque, uh, vaguely botched suicide, uh, stabs himself in the stomach. Uh, you don't want to hear about it. You know, history is a like. If you wish to hear about the darkness of it, go further. But anyway, so he well he he kills himself because he says, "I would rather kill myself than give Caesar in his victory the ability to forgive me for opposing him." So it wasn't he he assumed he would be pardoned by Caesar that he wouldn't be executed by Caesar after his law after even though they were in opposition he didn't want to give him the political clout of then forgiving his adversary and so now we contrast this to Mark Antony 
who was Cleopatra's uh, yeah. boyfriend or whatever. And he kills himself too, but the Romans did not see this as a good act because he killed himself for love. This yeah. is a very specific, I'm trying to get to a very specific kind of, point. Well, here's that, the thing, if I can jump in there. That would have been please. tied into like kind of the Roman idea of passion at that time, which was not viewed as the way we view passion today. Today, when we talk about passion, it's a positive thing. It's a kind of an excitement that leads you to do something great. It's a, a, a joy for life almost, an intensity that's, that's positive. Passion during this time was viewed as kind of a weakness because it would cloud your judgment. It would take over your ability to make sound decisions. And so passion in this scenario or rather in this in this era and in this scenario, particularly with Mark Anthony, is a negative thing. It's viewed as kind of like a personal failure, a failure of character even. I had to go get, collect some rainwater from the – it started raining time. again. I needed to get a <laughs> refill. So Yeah. <laughs> So we could go into all kinds of tangents about like Edward Said and his Orientalism and his mm. his idea that passion and emotion was uh, negatively associated in the minds of Western imperialists to the Arab world in order to in order to set them in opposition to the orderly ways of it's too much. But um, so mm. the the general commits suicide. You were talking about Mark Sorry. Anthony. Well, Mark Anthony killed himself, and, and the Romans were like, that's not. Yeah. They didn't view it as virtuous. It's not a virtuous suicide. What I'm trying to get at is that in this film, you really see like this this character is the amalgamation of all these ideas, you know, all the way back to Republican Rome and this masculine concept of uh patriotic virtue, which ends in his uh political Sacrifice, suicide. Yeah. Essentially, it is a it's a if you understand all these historical currents, you can understand the character more and not just say, oh, he was a crazy person because mm -hmm. and I'm sure that that the Stanley Kubrick understood these things. I think oh, for sure. I'm sure he did. He's a genius. But also uh, we understand them even without knowing the history exactly. and the details. I think we understand them kind of. You know, we, we get it in a way. I think even if you don't know all the details about this, the character makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the history, it still makes sense to some degree, right? Yeah, you're like, he's insane. But anyway, uh, you know, we could talk about uh, water, the water, Florid, Florida. I have such Jesus. a hard time with that word. Floridation, Floridation. right? Yeah, uh, Floridation. Floridation, I suppose. Uh, it's more, you're in but Florida. I think that. And you can't, you can't say those three letters first without saying Florida. It's patriotism, but for Florida. Uh, so, but we won't. I think that that's good. I think that's good for now. I think we, we went through enough historical stuff. I know that you, uh, you really let me go with the history today. That's all about patriotic suicide? Are you joking? There needs to be more. So we need to go into this more. I mean, so here's the thing. Oh, hamburgers also. The Big Mac. We got to talk about oh, the Big Mac. Okay, and well, Donald don't Trump. forget about that. So here's the thing. I would okay. like to. I'll kinda, make a note. Yeah, do that. That's actually a good idea because I don't want to forget that because it would be. It's important to see how this kind of, how this has deteriorated, and that's the other thing about this idea of the character committing um, 
political suicide in the traditional sense is that that's also another idea that we don't even if you look at the way that we use the word today it actually shows how much that idea has degenerated now political suicide means it's something selfish it's you're doing something bad for your career political suicide in its origins was considered an honorable thing it was taking this um ultimate stance against something that that would i guess go against your honor essentially and um so you see that in the general even though he crazy like his his aim is off but you're seeing uh the play out of all these older ideas and i do think that it's like easy to kind of write the character off as crazy because they're like oh now he kills himself you know but um and it, and it it's it's it is important to make that distinction between killing yourself in passion the way Mark Antony did and killing yourself as a cold calculated choice against something you perceive as unethical or dishonorable um and so I don't know I think that that's a really uh, I think the character is really interesting for that reason and I think all the characters are just great and we could do you could do an episode on every single one of these characters for the most part because Kubrick is so good at the psychology like reaching deep into the psychology of a certain almost archetypal figure and playing that out for us and that's why this movie is so fascinating because it's such a character rich movie there are so many big characters that are very well defined because they his he, his understanding of their psychology is just unnervingly good. The thing that that really got me going to look into all this and try to put this idea together with the character in the movie was um, I, I started looking through words. You know, I do the word, word of the podcast, as you know, I do the word as of the I podcast, know. and I found virtue. And then something, I was like, wait a second. I don't think of any of the leaders as as like you just you just said political suicide now basically means either purposely or not purposely making a mistake that's going to jeopardize your yeah. career. That that idea is so this this is where things get dangerous though because it's like there's a certain safety in the fact that we all know that for the most part our politicians aren't serious people. Like, do you really expect what like a, a politician to be humiliated and then you know take them? I mean, what, how do you joke. want to say this? Like, I mean, yeah, like, there's no point, right? Like, like it's not. We truth, don't live in that so. world anymore, they, right? Right, and and politicians have lied forever, but I mean, but. At least they in have some no cases. Honor. At least in, in, you know, there's this thing, the politicians have, have uh, I mean, it's a far cry, you know, from the time I'm where just saying, you could yeah. look at your politicians with a, an ounce of respect. Um, you may think, like some of the politicians, but who do you really think has virtue? Yeah, the, I can name. And, like, and even divorce two. it from the divorce it from the masculine thing just the the moral courage yeah, the yeah. conduct all that kind of stuff i mean people don't think that way anymore and in some ways it's a less dangerous world maybe because people just simply aren't serious you know it's like oh uh, uh senator x comes and goes really they just seem like kind of a placeholder person for a system that runs on its own to some degree as opposed to a individual with 
an, a, an idea of virtue with strong ideas and is willing to essentially die for their belief. I mean, there is some maybe positive in that we don't have that because as we see in this movie, this guy also believed very fervently in that and he tried to start a nuclear war. So, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe there's but a it middle also, ground. You know, you don't have to have like a figure that is also right. like some kind of slimy, spineless you know shadow being you know or you know the other extreme of um, i'll die for my beliefs even though they're wrong <laughs> you know it's um but on, on a larger to, to even pull back larger i don't know how much we even have figures of virtue in our culture at all anymore if you're religious you might have that more because you can look at a, a figure like jesus or whatever different apostles or something for example as figures of virtue you know they've done something good and and they they are they're something you can aspire to but um i would actually divorce virtue in that religious sense from this this I get what you're saying, and yeah, of course, we, we would look to religion for what we well, think I mean, of again as that moral courage and conduct. Well, that's the thing I'm kind of getting at is that at least and look, I, I didn't I, I don't I didn't live in Republican Rome, but I mean, and I'm sure that a lot of the people just thought, yeah, the politicians aren't serious and all they do is lie and all this. But at least there was this concept, and in, in the early, it's how we look at George Washington a lot. You don't want to get me started about George Washington, you know no. that. This isn't the time to get started about George Washington. Another podcast. But like, but there is even in early America, this, it's, it's a different, it, we just, we have no, I think most people don't have any idea how different it is that we look at what is required of and expected of leaders and how, how different that was um, not too long ago. But, but I, I just religious virtue that it, that ends up getting different because what i'm trying to talk about is like there's some sort of kind of let's say secular but then you know that's weird because it's not secular because the romans literally had a god called virtus that's yeah. not secular in the sense of you know it, it's 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 odd it's um there's things aren't serious anymore like, well, do you okay. really take any? Do you take anyone seriously in politics anymore? There's no, I mean, there's no statesmen or statespeople, as you, as if you like. Uh, you know, there's no. That whole thing doesn't seem. I don't know. Like it's I don't part, think of, part of the part of the world anymore. In in a way, people take things too seriously in some regards, and then they take the uh, the things that they should take seriously not seriously at all. Um, I think that's one of the bigger problems in our culture right now is people seem so unable to decide between what should be taken seriously and what shouldn't. You know, you have like a cartoon making some offensive joke and this is like, this is the end of the world. But then you have something like uh, the NSA spying program or, you know, massive media companies curtailing speech. Eh, whatever. What's what's the headline today? You know, it's just like I think we take the wrong thing seriously and that's a big part of part of a big problem in our culture. But I wonder though I I'm tr I'm, I'm remembering no, a time when virtue was where aren't there virtues like the virtue of courage, the virtue of 
honesty, the virtue of um, whatever. There was these different virtues. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but that's where we got to, I think, separate that that form of the word meaning moral conduct. Well, I wonder if and you understand could how separate, that... though, because you had the God, Virtus. So this would, in a way, be the pinnacle of virtue, right? And then in this time, you have, like, you know, the Greek or Roman gods, whichever you like, that a lot of the time they embodied certain characteristics. So this is the God of war this is the god of communication this is the god of uh love and so they were the pinnacle of virtues in a way or at least some kind of honorable characteristics i wonder how much that ties into our idea of because you know that's the thing i think maybe it's it's not entirely it's it's not needed to be secular the idea of virtue it doesn't need to be secular i don't think it was was it historically secular so it's hard to parse all that out because what happens is Christianity enters the Roman Empire. <laughs> We're really going through history today. Christianity enters the Roman Empire, and now what we think of as a lot of virtues would be foreign to the virtues of a polytheistic Rome or Greece. Beyond that, and I guess we're getting towards the end of the podcast, so we start talking about Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, but... but <laughs> <laughs> but but the other but the other thing is when you look at let's say I'll bring I'll bring George Washington into the mix uh, and you look at these so remember the establishment of the American Republic was the first republic that had been established for almost two thousand years okay so these people were looking back to that time and looking very closely and this all comes out of also the enlightenment era and all this mm. which was a, a, a for the time a very secular way of thinking yeah. all of these people were talking about separation of church and state there's debate on whether or not like thomas jefferson some of the some of the uh founding right. fathers were even were basically yeah. in essence atheists you know so now so now you have to think of this kind of gap between republican rome and what I'm going to call secular virtue, even though, yes, it was deified in a god, yeah. let's just call it non-Christian anyway. Okay. Um, and now you have a couple thousand years. <laughs> and not to say that the, the, the founding fathers weren't informed by Christianity in a major way. Certainly they were. But they were also informed by the Enlightenment. And they were also informed by his, the history of Rome. Mm-hmm. In a major way, George Washington takes as his, um, he 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 founds the Order of Cincinnatus, which was a uh, Roman. Uh, we're really really going crazy, so so he 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 founds this Order of Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was a Roman figure who had been called to uh, lead briefly as a kind of dictator, basically, the Romans during a period of turmoil. And then, and then what Cincinnatus did was after his time serving, purposely set aside power and gave it back. Hmm. Do, now, that is, that, is, that is almost unheard of in human history hmm. for anyone to take power 
in a virtuous way, and then rescind do their duty, equally do their duty, and then give it back. And then he went back and became a farmer, Cincinnatus did. And so George Washington very consciously uh, in his own story of have, serving two terms as president and then saying, that's enough. I'm there because there were no term limits, remember? And yeah. there were a bunch of people who were essentially, there were a decent sized chunk of people that were saying, hey, George Washington, just just proclaim yourself the monarch of America. Then that didn't sound weird at all. In fact, that sounded yeah. in some ways a very reasonable thing since there was no, the, the idea of a republic was, was had been, had disappeared from the earth forever. So, yeah. not forever, for a long time. So, I'm trying to, I'm trying to guess, I'm trying to get this idea of virtue and how we, because we think of the word virtue as this very like kind of dowdy type of like old fashioned, but we mean old fashioned by like, you know, uh, I don't know, people wearing dresses below their knees and like covering up yeah, and like not, you know, like being very and... modest and that kind of stuff. But that is not what I hope that I've at least tried to explain. That is not what virtue used to mean and still does in some ways and as personified in this character in the film interesting i conflate it more with honor really like with being an honorable person and um being in a way how did you say how would you say like accountable to higher values is kind of how i would see it and i think that's why you know, it's that's dangerous, thing. right? You see how dangerous that is. Well, yeah, yeah, because that's the thing. You do see how it can play out very dangerously in this character. Um, but at the same time, what what do we more often see? Do we see the dangers of of a virtue that is misguided, or do we see in right. society the dangers of no virtue? I mean, that's a good at this point. point, you know, like we. I think on the contrary, it's it's there's so little of that personal ethos where a person uh, stays accountable to higher values that I think that's why you get partially this culture that that views politicians and just people in general and people in power all with contempt, all with spite. And it's not the only reason, for sure. In some cases, these people absolutely deserve contempt and spite. But um, I think, in part, that's, that's just what you have when you have a, a culture that, that has kind of lost that idea of honor and this is tricky it's tricky because then you can go astray with that idea of honor for sure i mean you have um i mean like what are these like honor killings is something that comes to mind probably for people more when they hear the word honor now is that uh it can be used by a kind of fundamentalist ideology as a way to punish those that do not match one's own virtues which that ain't right either. That goes in the wrong direction too. So, I mean, it's just, I wonder, you know, I wonder how, how it affects the culture to, to, to stray from that kind of personality. But, you know, I mean, would you say if you look at this, the so you have the general, but then you look back at the other character, I forget his name, the British character. I don't even know if they give him a name. Mandrake. But they do. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, Mandrake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one. Um, I mean, would you say that this is not a virtuous character? You know, like, can we say that he's not virtuous per se? Um, 
he is try he is the personification of 300 years uh, of running an empire and understanding the limitations of power and how not to he's not an extremist yeah mandrake right he's not an extremist and and also fundamentally he um uh, on one level, fundamentally, he understands that it's an, it is an insane yeah. thing to yeah. do. Like, okay, so the, this gets complicated because there is a logic, and and we in a separate podcast talk about the extreme logic behind the technological systems and all the game theory and all that was built up around nuclear war, right? But I mean, Mandrake doesn't want to see that happen, and also. Um, you know, assumes that that the general that the general is uh, di- disobeying orders, and then in the film you see that may actually not exactly be right because it seems like they've they've legislated or allowed certain generals to preemptively launch uh, nuclear weapons. But but I think Mandrake is just this uh, a foil. He's the he's the opposite of uh, the general. And he's also subordinate in a lot of ways, right? Because he's the guy holding. He doesn't shoot the machine gun. He's the guy holding the thing now. So yeah, there's always yeah. this sense of this. There's also this sense of the British now being the secondary power to the Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's played out physically throughout the movie. Like it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just it's too much. When I, when I, when I think about this and how, how many... <laughs> How every scene you can you can take something out of it, uh, but yeah. So so the British guy is always kind of second subordinate to this. Mm-hmm. I think by rank. Well, I don't yeah, know how yeah, the rank no, system works. It is work by there. rank too. Yeah. But uh, and then you see briefly again, and I I I I, I again do not think of the British as a feminine. I like Britain, mm-hmm. and, and I actually understand the history. I'm just trying to say there's this American concept of that. Yeah. It's really accent and language, a lot of it. But yeah. so, and you see this after uh, when the just kind of grunt soldier. I don't know if what he is. He's actually relatively high ranked. Comes in and captures Mandrake, mm-hmm. and it's suspicious of him and calls him a prevert. And he thinks that he's yeah, trying yeah. to say pervert, but he's just doesn't under he's so provincial and doesn't understand and suspicious and doesn't understand what even a British person would sound like. And he, th- that's that's yeah, really yeah. where you get that that idea of this like kind of bumpkin American yeah. who's like, what you, you're a prevert. You talk with a weird accent, you know. So, yeah, uh, so something's wrong with you. You're <laughs> yeah. And just briefly, the best one of the my funniest lines in the movie is. You'll have to answer to the Coca-Cola Corporation for this. Like when he's when he tells him to, to shoot the Coca-Cola thing in order to get change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Oh man. It's yeah, too this much. movie's actually um it's one you gotta watch twice. I mean, I say that about a lot of the movies. I think I say that about all the movies on the podcast, because I definitely watch them more than twice. But I think these that's the thing is um, there's a selection bias for the movies we cover because any movie that's really worth its shit is worth watching twice uh because the second time you watch it you really start to see more in it and uh, there has to be more in it for you to do that and in this movie i mean i think you can really just tell that uh, kubrick reads a lot too like i think it just is apparent in how how um much depth the characters and the story has that he 
read everything. Like it just seems like the knowledge, you know, and how how far reaching his knowledge is. Because this movie, this is just one episode, and you could do you could go into almost every character. There's a many different scenes that deserve you know their own deep analysis too, and it's really. It's one of those things that's just, this is art, you know? And I, I love watching a movie like that because it does what art is supposed to do, which remind you that there's so so much depth and something, and there's so much, I don't know, something bigger to human existence. And and good art reminds you to kind of like pause in a way and, and appreciate the complexity and the vastness of life. And this movie I watched and it's just like, man, so much going what on. What it does, it you know what what is really great about it is that you're absolutely right about that. It's a serious film that you can take all these different theories from. But you know what? It's not heavy handed art yeah. film that puts you to sleep. It's a fun movie that's actually a comedy that's it, that's fun to watch. That's the mix. With action. That's what I. That's what I want. I don't necessarily need action, but but, but yeah, that's the amazing I mean, thing sure, also some action that you can put too. action in True. a movie with that level of philosophy and psychology, and still you know uh, have it be really worth analysis. That's incredible. Well, look at you know I don't know if you noticed, but all of the actual footage where there's fighting outside has this very like I think a cinema verite look, like handheld camera. Yeah look with the soldiers running around all that kind of stuff almost every scene there's a few scenes That's they don't true, do that yeah. with where they they actually have to oh, but it doesn't matter we, we don't like to we we shy away from scene analysis but it was just something a brief yeah. brief trivia that i give you yep this movie really is um i don't know one of the podcast favorites i would say it's you virtuous know? would you think about a virtuous film I would absolutely say it's a virtuous film. I don't know. I it has a a good good uh a good goal. I don't know. I think art should have, you know, should make a valiant effort. Art can be virtuous. Art can be virtuous. And this is not again, I think, you know, it's not to say that art has to be moral or do some kind of like thing like this, but it's beholden to higher values and i think that that's what makes things good it makes a person good it makes art good it makes your work good when you're not this kind of like nasty little fucking weasel that's trying to like grab a piece of meat and run off you know like you are more like this respectable wolf in a group that's playing the longer game not this kind of like little parasite or some little you know type of those little animals that no one respects you know like the fucking vultures or something like that would you say that a vulture is virtuous no what do you think of as virtuous you think of these animals hey, that hey, hunt for hey. their food that work together hey the american eagle the american bald eagle is a vulture no 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 it's not a vulture what are you talking about Look it How up. How is the bald eagle a vulture? Look it up. No, you look it up. You have to look it up if you're going to bring things to the podcast. You look that up right now. I find that very offensive. I don't think that's right at all. Vultures, they eat carrion. Like, they don't, they don't hunt. That's the thing. The eagle hunts. That motherfucker hunts. Os Ospreys. Wait. Those are different. Those are Ospreys like hawks, are, Hold they? on. Golden eagles are keen hunters and bald eagles are, well, mostly vultures. Bald eagles decorate the sky largely because they are vultures. What? 
This is all kinds of crazy information that you're getting right here first on the podcast. How is an eagle a vulture? They hunt. This is now we're see now we've gone astray because now we're completely out of our territory and we're just talking bullshit about animals that we don't know anything about. But well, that's you okay. started throwing. Uh, you started. Well, I was talking about off- wolves. You were okay, being so offensive to the weasel community. Number one, <laughs> and I don't think that weasels are necessarily. No, weasels uh, do hunt. They do hunt. I was listen. trying to think of some little animal, oh, like a rat or something. You know, like some animal that steals food, that eats dead things, that doesn't actually like earn their keep in a way. I guess. I mean, they do. Obviously, every animal has earn a role their in the keep? ecosystem. What kind, of, what kind of capitalist are you? Like a non-human <laughs> capitalist, like saying they must work their eight-hour job or whatever, uh, <laughs> making vultures, well, giving I mean, vultures. What animal would you want to be? Do you want to be the animal that goes later and like grabs scraps that another animal ate? I mean, I guess, but like no one really wants to have that animal around. No one, you know, finds uh, some type of like if you look at mythology and things like that, there's not the mythology of like a parasite. I'm very disappointed about the eagles, I got to say. That's not right. We're going to have to put well, that in the me, show notes. I'm still because... trying to Okay, you know what? There's a there's a there's an actual I can't I there's some semantical this out right problem now. going on. I have there. heard this. It could be a conspiracy theory. It may be a conspiracy theory that bald eagles are vultures, but I'm not It sounds like I, communist propaganda. <laughs> it does sound like it does. It does. Uh, but I think that they may be. I'm not sure. I'm not gonna take a hard stance on this. That doesn't but sound I right think, at all. I mean, they'll eat a dead thing. Every animal will take an opportunity. No, not every animal will eat a dead thing. Not every animal will eat a dead thing. It's laying around. That's different. Being a, like a scavenger is different. I don't well, no, 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 do no. that. It means it do you do that? How dead. Like, you shouldn't do that. You go to the store and you buy a dead thing. What the fuck are you talking about? You literally well, I don't do. actually do that. Well, yeah, me neither. Well, I, but like, I do. that's what people do. Humans buy that's already different. killed. That's different. If there's one thing we know, we're not biologists. That's for sure. And we do Uh, not claim to be. And this is not not. a zoology or biology podcast. So we'll let viewers viewers tell us if the bald eagle is a vulture or not. I don't want to hear Instead of me going to Wikipedia and trying (laughs) to figure it out at this point. I think that this all comes back. You wanted me to remind. It's very important. That we talk about. I want to try to. I want to try to. We s- forgot. Try to explain this to bring it all together. Okay, so I have a question. Why were people think about it this way? This is about the body politic again. Why are people concerned with in recent memory? Remember Donald Trump had some party at the White House and he had like he catered yeah, it with McDonald's giant, and he had all yeah, the yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so <laughs> and there's. A lot of talk about how he was not a physically healthy person, right? Mm-hmm. And there's oh, always yeah. this talk about this, this. happened with Hillary uh, Clinton too. Remember, there was like some issue, sure. and then Bernie Sanders got it. Oh, he's too old, you know. Like this is the the health of politicians comes under scrutiny. The higher, the more power they want to take, particularly in the presidential thing. I don't think for the most part anybody cares about the health of a congressman. They really, we really don't. They talk do. About it they much. were. I remember watching like people. McConnell, they had like pictures of his hand that was all blue and oh, weird looking, yeah. and they were like, "What's going yeah, on here?" Right. And they What's do all <laughs> this, all this. That's now true. part of but that's part of the thing. Is that's because he's also like way more in the spotlight, also, and he, 
He's well, uh, sure. he's held on to his power for quite a while. So I think he, he gets more scrutiny. But what's interesting is that that scrutiny often comes not necessarily just in the form of his policies, but the scrutiny of his physical health. Which right. Is why and so it's there's so this strong for presidents too, and presidential candidates. There's this kind of uh, theater of physical strength that, in particular, strongman dictator type people do. They put it on display. And so now let's think about Vladimir Putin. And you, mm-hmm. many of you have seen this image of him riding his horse uh, without a shirt on, you know, being very strong. He does stuff where he shows him practicing judo, which I think yeah. he actually is a skilled judo practitioner. Probably I don't, is. I don't think that's yeah. bullshit. Like that's actually yeah. real. Uh, and you know, he's really riding his horse, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, so there's this, there's a reason that politicians do this. And there is a reason that media talks about the health of politicians and you'll almost always see it. The opposite party in America will be deriding the health of the opposite party. So now mm-hmm. everyone's like Joe Biden has barely can do anything. And Dementia, th- let's yeah. forget about, let's forget about the truth of these statements, whether or not they're true. Yeah. For a moment, even though Donald Trump did didn't look exactly super healthy, and Joe Biden doesn't look super sharp, yeah, I'll, I'll go on record as saying that at this moment. That's fine, I think we but I'm not, you know, <laughs> but I wouldn't like. But if you watch the news and watch the the bickering between political parties, what they do is they attack the other political party's state of health more often than you would think, because yeah. you would also you would also say how much does that really play into the ideas the political ideas they have and that that's what i'm trying to get at there's this, again through this whole podcast there is a link between the health of the body and you think that we don't do it anymore we still do it there's this there's this 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 analogy that is drawn that we all even subconsciously have which is that the physical health of the political establishment somehow is a reflection upon the health of our own uh as a nation and i mean then you can get into this even farther with uh you know the pandemic recently and how that how that plays out this idea of you know but we but we don't need the to get into that nation, because yeah. think about how that we were really during the pandemic being there is actually health uh a health crisis and then with a political crisis simultaneously. And yeah. I don't think those things are completely unlinked. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. Speculation. I, I, I think that that's an interesting I've run out of rainwater. You know. People I mean, do. No, no, no. I'm just ranting now at this point. I'm out of <laughs> rainwater, so I'm getting, I'm getting uh, testy. Yeah. All right. Yeah, people do, uh, we still do definitely scrutinize the health of our politicians. And I think that there is that sense that, and, it, and it be, it's a very literal one also in a way, it's a very common sense one, which is, well, this person's going to lead a country and they look like they are frail or they're in, unable to get their daily tasks done. So in that regard, you know, it's a very obvious thing to scrutinize and be concerned over. But really what it's saying in a larger uh, a larger picture is that we look to you know the representative of our country at the highest level which would be the president whether it's not that he has all the power but he is in a way the face of the country 
and uh, and represents the nation. And so when you have someone that is frail or their health is questionable or they seem to have vices, um, these it's almost like it's hard to kind of put your faith in that figure as representing the nation because in some way we're linked to their their lack of health. You know, we are yeah, yeah. going to be somehow well, the United States is a country that's led by this person that is, you know, has a very bad diet or is seen, you know, smoking all the time or is uh, is, is unable to 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 walk well or something. And so, yeah, you can make these things. People say like, oh, that's, you know, that's discriminatory or whatever. But there's something almost very um, primal about wanting your leader to seem in good health and strong and able it's the idea is that the person is capable i mean if you were going to go into remember they covered up traditionally you would want your leader to be someone that could lead could fight alongside you you wouldn't want you wouldn't feel inspired if you were in a battle where you have your leader sitting in you know some kind like a very old decrepit sitting in the back and that's who's giving you command and inspiration it comes from a very you know uh common sense tradition so remember FDR couldn't walk That's during right. either all of his presidency or most of them, I'm not sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. the media knew it. I mean, they know, they know they're there with him. They know he can't, they see the wheelchair. They know he can't mm-hmm. walk. Like, and there's an agreement. We're not going to show this. Yeah. They didn't show it. Remember the, the country didn't really know that. I don't think for a long period of time, uh, John F. Kennedy had Addison's disease. I think it was, which I think is a thyroid problem. Uh, that was not put out in the in the media at all. Uh, That's super interesting because that shows right there that like intuitive understanding that a, a leader struggling with their health kind of puts a little bit of uh, a concern into the people. And and I mean, you know, this is tricky territory because people will say, oh, that's discriminatory. If someone's in a wheelchair or someone has an unhealthy diet or what, or they're just elderly or whatever, they should be able to be having the same opportunities as anyone else. And da, da, da. Uh, you know, that, that kind of breaks down when you start having the question of Joe Biden being of sound mind. Then we start to say, oh, well, you know, I mean, we want him to be able to be of sound mind to make decisions, right? Well, okay, you can easily extend that concern to the rest of the concerns. I mean, yeah, of course, someone should be able to be the president and be in a wheelchair. That's obviously like we get it. But there is this primal human sentiment that you want a strong, quote unquote, strong leader. But there is the the place where that goes a little bit wrong. And when you have that overly macho strong man which is usually a dictator some type of authoritarian personality so that's the other side of that when it gets to you don't want a putin you know because putin yeah he's out here with his shirt off and he's an athlete and all this stuff but he's also an authoritarian so that's the other side of that that's complicated a lot of russians do want that a, lo- well, this a goes lot, beyond not just all, Russia, but I mean, he's, he's actually popular in Russia. To the strongman way character more than... goes beyond Russia. Sure, sure it does. And I mean, I don't want to speak to specifics of Russian politics. I'm just and saying in America, we have this sense. Yeah. We, no, no, forget about the cultural thing. I'm just saying that like, yes, it is. But Americans want to yeah. think, Americans want to think that if we have an opponent, we often want to think that the population 
of the other country, which we have an adversarial relationship, hates their leader. And I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, people that are not. <sighs> I don't want to get into the specifics of Vladimir Putin. I just, I, I guess, what I'm trying to say is that um, it's, it's weird. You know, I'm trying to think now. This is all just off the cuff. Trying to think about like recent presidents and how this all plays out. I remember a long time ago. I don't remember very well. There was this idea that Bill Clinton was always jogging. You know, he was like, and, and he would take, he would he would make it shown. I think to the press he was jogging a lot. But then I guess. He got fat after, or maybe he was fat before, and he started jogging. I don't know. I don't know. There's something there that I, I remember vaguely. Um, hmm. Just trying to think of how this all, how this all. Of course, you get into these. You now this gets this gets complicated, and it's not important. I'm just trying to think of all the like health stuff in recent years that have gone on with presidents and how it freaks people out i think there's a very real reason to be freaked out about it to some degree because they well, hold yeah. the, the codes the nuclear weapons right but the thing is that there's always this that there are these systems in place to make it okay if something happens uh if a president's incapacitated or whatever there's a system in place we have so i it just you know, I think there's something about this idea of Trump eating hamburgers and, and looking kind of unhealthy. And there's there's some class component stuff there, too. And I think he was purposely kind of trolling people to some degree also. But I mean, he may also just like Burger King or whatever or, or McDonald's. But uh, there, there's it's like it's like we vote to have this person to represent us. And if they're unhealthy, it makes us feel like we're it makes us feel like there's something wrong with with the the body politic. And again, I'll make one more analogy about this, which is the idea of the Constitution. We have a United States Constitution. But if you, when you think about that word, that word can be used in different ways. We think of the Constitution as your Constitution is also the sum total of your uh your 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 body you know it's used yeah. in that way so th and this is where some of the, this idea a long time ago in a history class i had i remember some teacher talking about this in the 19th century this relationship between again physical health and the idea of the, uh the constitution of the individual uh with the health of the the, the actual document the united states constitution and all that and you know we we they called these kind of healthy walks that people would take constitutionals, and uh, oh. there's 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 some there's stuff around that. Um, That's so that interesting. word also. But I just keep seeing these analogies between this, and then as we talked about it, and as I and even just kind of free freestyling here today, thinking about it, um, there's something there, there's something there, and there's something there that's in that film that you see. Yeah. Don't. No, wait. I don't want to take a hard stance. Uh, collect rainwater for freedom. Is and that drink fair? Only the finest pure grain alcohol. <laughs>